To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. What's happening, guys? Uh, I got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So this week I have on Kai Kenzer. Um, Kai is just a great guy. He's a, a self-guided, public land, do-it-yourselfer. Um, he lives out of New Mexico and kind of got a lot of his experience hunting there. Uh, and now he's been traveling out of state and been extremely successful. And so we just sit down and have an authentic conversation about what it takes uh, when you're traveling out of state, how to, to learn units, break them down, and then kind of our tactics uh, going about hunting these units and, and uh, stalking and, and everything in between. But he's a, a really great guy and, and a great authentic conversation. So uh, I sure enjoyed it, and I think you guys will too. Uh, Sponsor for today's show is Sitka. Um, Sitka is just a great company. I've just fallen in love with their stuff, and and you've heard me on the podcast talk about it, but I'm almost exclusively using their gear and and exclusively using it for for hunting, for fishing, for – um, for my trail running, I mean, you name it, I'm probably wearing Sitka. I'm wearing it right now as I'm doing the podcast, but they, they just make such great gear and they've, they've evolved it. Um, every year it just seems to get better and better, both their, their cut, their fit, their materials, um, and, and just having true mountaineering gear, uh, to be able to be comfortable in the mountains. So I can't say enough good things. I love their system all the way from top to bottom. Uh, they came out with that lightweight hoodie. So you guys have heard me talk about my son hoodie before. I've been using that. Uh, we actually have a piece that we're going to give away on the podcast here in a, a future episode. I want to start giving these away to our guests. But uh, the Apex hoodie, I uh, can't wait to, to get that in my hands and check that out. But they're just doing incredible stuff. They keep evolving. Um, it, it lasts the test of time. When you, when you spend good money on your gear, you need it to hold up. And uh, they definitely build durable gear and, and functional gear. So uh, thanks to Sitka for sponsoring the podcast. Um, with that, over there at Eastman's, um, yeah, we're just getting these podcasts out. It's been busy here, construction and, and uh, podcasts we've been recording and uh, making sure we're getting everything out. But but that's life. Life is busy, and so that's good. It's uh, uh, keeping me keeping my nose to the grindstone, making sure I'm getting everything done and, and making sure I'm putting good effort into this podcast. So um, just couldn't be more excited at the direction. Uh, and we, I've seen those deals come out for the magazine, uh, 20 bucks for both issues for the year. You got their MRS in there. Uh, I'm working hard on my applications and, and, uh, put my name in the hat everywhere I can, I can think of, or that I can draw and fit in. So, uh, we'll see what I come up with for tags, but, uh, I think I'm going to have some good hunts coming into this season. So, uh, just, just really excited at the prospects and, and uh, going to some some old places I know, and then uh, branching off and going to some new places. So um, mix and match, and and uh, try to just find that honey hole where that giant buck or that giant bull is living. So, uh, anyways, over there at Eastman's, everything's going good. We're just cruising, getting things done. That Beyond the Grid has sure had some great episodes lately, and so make sure to check that out. And with that, uh, let's get this thing rolling. So, really fun conversation with Kai Kinzer and uh, me on Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Okay, I'm live here with Kai Kinzer. Um, Kai, thanks a bunch for being on with me, man. 
Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, so we met. I started seeing your your pictures on social media, and uh, man, uh, you had a great season. Like I saw three really good muleys you harvest this year, and you're all public land, self-guided, mostly solo hunts, you know, and all with your bow. Uh, I just thought it was so cool and thought we should connect for a podcast. Definitely. Looking forward to it. Uh, you're hardcore, and it's nice to chat with someone that, you know, has kind of the same passion and the same um, tact at getting it done, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so um, I've seen quite a few elk, but, um, you know, from our earlier talks, it sounds like you're a muley guy. I love mule deer hunting. Um, they're by far my favorite animal. I haven't been able to draw elk tag in really recent history, so um, a lot of that's just you know i would i would love to to go after an elk every year but just can't get the tag so i take what i can get and i do a, a lot of mule deer hunting a lot of you know easy to draw over the counter general you know low point type hunts and that's where i really cut my teeth and during the formative years doing those mule deer hunts i think is what made me love them so much you know when i was growing up trying to learn how to bow hunt i was doing that on muleys and so um it, i just fell in love with them and that's that's by far my biggest passion now yeah gotcha mine too i love hunting mule deer i mean i love hunting elk too or any species with my bow really but muleys are, are what i daydream about and what i think about and plot and plan and definitely <laughs> take priority like in application season that we're in now you know i'm looking to i'm looking to hunt muleys in as many places like as i can and and you're you're located in new mexico right is your home base yep las cruces new mexico yeah. born and raised and um Spent a little time in Colorado, but uh, this is where I live. So, not great muley country. Um, you know, there's there's pretty decent opportunity. You can you can get a tag, but you know, it's tough hunting, low density and low trophy potential. But man, you can still learn a lot, and then uh, you know, transition that to when you maybe get a a better tag or a better opportunity somewhere else. Yeah, so you've started to figure out how to be consistently successful, which is so tough with a bow and arrow and on really good bucks and you're you're traveling out of state to these different units. So is that where you got a lot of your experience was hunting New Mexico on those those tough hunts where they were tough to find, quality trophy was tough and so you got experience hunting them there and so then you were able to transpose that to other places? Yes, that's what I grew up doing, um desert muleys, you know, with desert country up to 6,000 feet, you know, cactus all the way to pinyon juniper type stuff and uh, very low deer density. There's New Mexico as a whole is has very low uh, trophy potential on deer. Um, you can find a mature buck that, you know, at his peak may score, you know, 150 inches. And so um, it's, it becomes relative and you you can have a great hunt and learn a lot and, you know, strive to, to take that mature buck. Um, but he's not going to have a big rack like you see, you know, on the cover of a magazine coming from somewhere else, but it's still, an, uh, it's a great place to cut your teeth and to learn and uh, you can have a, a great time. So that's, that's the way I, I, you know, really got into it and starting putting in the days and, you know, learning the mule deer behavior and just being a, a student of, of nature and what they do and, and trying to get in there and make successful stocks. And so that's that's where it all got started. And that's still a hunt that I love to do every year. Um, and, 
it's you know kind of kind of same results but um it's definitely in my blood well and you're you know it seems like your your expectations has to match your opportunity and i i hunt a spot like that as well and i hunt it during general rifle with my bow and so like a mature buck out there is like you say 150 160 inches and he may be a five or six year old deer but um you know too many times we get caught up in score and giant racks, and that's you know that's all what we're striving for. And uh, I can't say that I'm going to turn down an opportunity at a 200-inch buck, but I love hunting out there like during the rut, like for those 150, 160-inch deer. Like that's still a big mule deer. He gets me excited when I see a good heavy 160-inch mule deer, you know. So yeah, I'll chase those to the end of time as well. And it just gets me so much experience as you're you're out in the spot that i hunt they've got pretty good mule deer populations they just don't get very big so you get a lot of opportunity and a a lot of stocks and things but um man it's always fun if you're if you're hunting uh you know giants or if you're hunting you know it's all relative like when you're when you're out there 160 incher is a giant and gets you excited and you want to do everything in your power to try to harvest him Absolutely. Yeah, you're spot on and you can get so excited just, you know, finding that mature buck. And, you know, if you, if it does come together for you, that's every bit as much of a trophy as, you know, being in a great area and taking a, uh, what most people would consider a giant buck, but it's, it is a great experience. And the memories I have on a lot of those hunts, especially in my younger years are still some of my favorite. Well, in a, a mature buck on public lands, you know, that's it's something to be um, really proud of. Like that that deer is five or six years old and he's you know, he's evolved to to be effective and efficient in in that habitat, you know, to be able to avoid danger. And so you have to go into that habitat and you have to figure it out, whatever that habitat is, whether it's high country, high desert, sagebrush, uh, what you call a uh, juniper pinion. Is that what you called it? Yeah, pinion juniper. It's kind of the, it's it's the most in this part of the world. It's kind of the most common um, vegetation. When you get to that five six thousand foot mark, it's kind of the intermediate. Yeah, so it's just as much of an accomplishment to kill a giant deer there as it is anywhere else. In fact, it might even be more difficult, mean more to you, like because it's a a home state buck. You know, it's where you grew up hunting them. It's where you cut your teeth, and so you know they're tough to kill there. And so it means more. At least that's you know for me, like a Montana buck, it's a home state buck, and we're not managed for for giant quality we're you know we're we're more managed for opportunity and let us hunt during the rut which is the achilles heel of the mule deer and so you know it's tough to find a mature buck so when you kill a mature one it means the world to you so i can kill 160 inch or 165 in montana and uh you know that hunt may mean more to me than than killing a 190 incher in the high country sometimes although i do love the high country but you know what i'm saying <laughs> yes i do <laughs> yeah i do indeed yeah i followed along your hunt um pretty well this this past season the hunt you're talking about and man that seemed like a good time seemed like you had a good time out there with family and you guys were all successful on nice bucks yeah it was a it was a great year out there yeah the um right now the cycle is really good out there in that spot like it was really good in 2006 2007 when i kind of found that spot and started taking my family out there it was just such good mule deer populations and then you know over the years i've just learned all these different spots down there is there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles of muley country and so i've driven nearly every road out there and i've hiked to you know nearly every remote spot out there i can find not every remote spot but a ton of them and so like as the mule deer populations come back out there and uh the mature 
we get more mature bucks, a, a better count of them, like it's like it's going right now. Like all those spots are paying off now that I found over the years. So um, yeah, we did really good. Dad killed his best buck, and um, yeah, I got a nice one with my bow. But gosh, there was just uh, some monsters around. So I, I just can't wait until next year out there. Yep, this is the season for anticipation, <laughs> isn't it? Yep. Yep. And Absolutely. so that New Mexico country, that's um you had mentioned it's desert hunting down there, is that right? Yeah, where pretty much the southern I would say southern half to two thirds of New Mexico is is pretty deserty. You know, you get some higher elevation on the west side along the Arizona line, but um for the most part it's low sandy desert. Is it like um Desert mountains then, or you're talking just desert uh, valley uh, floor, and then it's got some character and rolls and hills and coolies and things. I'm just trying to picture it in my own head. Yeah, so it's it's similar to southern Arizona for the most part. So okay. it's it's um, valley floors, and then you have mountain ranges norm, normally that are running north to south that kind of break up the topography. But um, it's largely flat, some rolling hills, you know, here and there, but. Um, pretty flat and then you have a mountain that juts up every once in a while gotcha so is your main tactic out there spot and stock then yes yep that's all i do um and that's just the way i started hunting and that's really the only effective tactic in those areas and that's something that i just um, continue to do i love it i love you know my favorite thing in the world is uh trying to sneak up on a deer with my bow. I don't think there's <laughs> any better feeling, you know, whether it works out or not. I mean, it's just such a rush and it's so challenging to do. Um, so that's what keeps me coming back is just trying to, trying to do that and to hone my game. And it's just so tough. Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it is, it is so tough and so challenging and, but so fun and so rewarding. But yeah, you got to learn lessons the hard way, and you just don't succeed every time. You you fail a lot. It seems like a lot more than you succeed. Uh, but you just keep learning, and you keep storing that that data in your head, you know. And so when the the next chance you get, you know, you hope that you make the right decision. Your instincts take over, and it comes together. And, and it seems like persistence is such a huge deal with it. It's like you can't – you may stock a buck and you don't get them, but that's not where the hunt ends. You know, you keep hunting and you earn another opportunity and you go on that stock. Maybe that one doesn't work out. And then the next one, maybe it all comes together. Or sometimes it comes together on the first one. Like is that your experience hunting uh, spot and stock like New Mexico and these different places? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've it seems like my success rate has, has gone up, you know, as as I've gotten uh, more in tune with what I'm doing, as as you would expect, but especially initially, I mean, uh, I think uh, <laughs> for people maybe just getting into bow hunting, you probably have a pretty pretty hardcore audience on this podcast, but um, you know, I I would say that the expectation is for it to not work out. I mean, you you always hope and you and you follow through as though it's going to, but I mean, the vast majority of of your stocks and your attempts are are probably not going to work out uh, when you first get going and i mean i i think i told you about this before but the first deer i ever shot at i just i was so excited and so jacked that i I watched my arrow sail and just skipped off a rock that was a solid 15 feet in front of the deer (laughs) (laughs) Um, go ahead sorry and that's, you know, still to this day, it's one of my favorite memories. And I think it took me three seasons of hunting before I even got a shot. And that was the end result. And I ended up, you know, 
sticking with it and i did harvest a deer that season and so absolutely what you're saying persistence is key and it's um it's really the only way you will be successful because you you are going to be you know on the smaller scale unsuccessful in many of the the stocks and attempts and i mean you might locate a deer that you don't locate again and just you know little things here and there you can't can't really have the expectation for it to to work out every time it's so tough, and like you say, uh, making those shots, I'm the same way. The first time I shot an animal, at an animal, I don't even remember putting my pins on them or looking <laughs> through my peep or anything. It's like a car wreck, you know? You're just yeah. you're not used to you know, operating under that, that uh, fog of adrenaline yet or that high, intense pressure, and so, yeah, it just kind of grabs a hold of you and you lose your mind. But, yeah, no, it is so difficult, but you do get better. You get more proficient. You get more confident. Once you know, you know, once you've had a little success, you can kind of draw on that but we we still fail even the best of us fail you find a buck that you want to kill so bad and you do anything and you're patient and you can spend a, a week hunting them and you can watch them and wait and you can still go in and blow it you know or you yeah. know sometimes it comes together but yeah you're just playing those those percentages and trying to get your chances but it is bow hunting is so difficult and you said like it uh three years did you say three years to get a shot or three years to make your first harvest so it was three years to get a shot, and then I got that shot that I just airballed okay. that I told you about, and then yep. I, you know, persistence. I just kept after it, and eventually ended up shooting, you know, a, a small buck. But that was my first archery buck, and man, I was just so ecstatic. Well, you sure have shortened the learning curve quick. Like, uh, you, you've gone from taking three years to get your first shot to being successful on multiple animals a year, poping young animals. Um, that's just wild. So, uh, you're learning quick and doing the right things, obviously. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. Three years to get your first shot. Like, that's yep. just the way it goes. <laughs> like, I, you know, I've been successful, like, on, on some different species, but I, I'm the same way where it takes, you know, years to get it dialed in. So three years to earn a shot, and now you're getting multiple shots per season. Uh, just amazing how, like, the progression of a hunter, it seems. Absolutely, and I think it ab- absolutely is a progression. That's a good way of putting it. But, um, yeah, I, I've I've felt, you know, uh, pretty comfortable the the last few years. I think it, it probably took me about, I would say it took me a good eight years until I felt really proficient. And then the, the piece I was missing was the time piece. And so I, I, I felt pretty comfortable, but I didn't really have the, the time to make good. So, um, you know, the last two or three years I've, I've had the time to incorporate. And so that's really been a game changer for me is to actually, you know, instead of <laughs> just driving all night and, um, showing up, you know, early in the morning and hiking in in the dark and, you know, getting, you know, an evening hunt and a morning hunt and then hiking all the way back out and driving back to Monday morning obligations. I've actually been able to stay in the back country for a week or sometimes longer. And that's, that's been the game changer for me. So you can have multiple opportunities and, uh, really, really give it your all. So, um, took a long time to build the, build the skill set, build the confidence. Um, and then, you know, I still wasn't successful at the level I wanted to be because I didn't have the time to dedicate. But uh, last few years, I've you know, it's kind of all fallen into place, and uh, I've been been very fortunate and had some good success. 
Yeah, I'd say, um, well, yeah, you've paid your dues eight years to, to figure out how to be proficient, but that's still pretty quick to figure out how to be prof- proficient. But, yeah, you bring up a good point. So the, the the missing piece to the puzzle was having more time, and so you were weekend warring, warring it. Warring? God, I can't even say that word. Warrior. <laughs> Anyway, exactly. Uh, But you you were going on weekends and you were going so hard and having a a tough time finding consistent success. And and now you've been afforded the opportunity to take a little bit more time on these hunts. And I've always said that if I can have the time, I can kill the trophy. And I'm you know, I'm getting more and more time every year, which is really nice. But that is a, a big key factor to being successful is having enough time and and being able, you know, hunting those weekends. There's so many guys, you know, you're you're also dealing with a lot more pressure during the weekends. You know, you can't really get in tune with the woods and you you have such a short amount of time. It, it's just it's really tough to be successful and not that you can't do it. And sometimes that's what we're left with. And, you know, so you're definitely going to hunt rather than not hunt. And you definitely have a, a better odds of filling your tag, being out there than not being out there. But yeah, having that week long hunting that middle of the week and, and getting in tune with the woods and having, you know, enough time to where you don't got to force stocks or force issues. You can wait and make sure you get the right wind and make sure you make the right play. That's, that's a huge difference maker, man. So I, I think you're spot on with that. Absolutely. One thing that you said right there that I think really, really rings true is, uh, you said getting in tune with the woods. And I think that, um, I think that that's a, a big aspect that's maybe not, you know, uh, on the forefront of every, everyone's mind, but you really got to spend some time out there and you gotta, you gotta learn and you gotta get, you know, all the stuff from your normal life back home, kind of out of your head. And you got to you got to get into the nature and after a couple days it really starts to click you know you're you're um waking up super early in the morning going to bed early you know you're you get used to eating the marginal food that you're carrying in your backpack you get used to it all and then it becomes kind of the new norm and i think you can function at a much higher level after that acclimation period and so when you're just running out there and and trying to you know, do it, hike in and do it in the evening and then maybe the next morning as well and then running back to your job or whatever the case may be. Um, I think that it's it's really tricky because so much of being successful, especially in the red zone of these big deer and, or elk or whatever you're chasing, is just letting your, your senses and your experience and your, your knowledge just uh, letting it run its course and not rushing and just uh, just really being a student of those animals and and knowing their behavior and getting in close and making those stocks count yeah um yeah so many great points there and along with that like there's this this unspoken thing too where you you just start to feel comfortable in the woods like it starts to feel natural and normal and like the way you move through the woods like all of a sudden you're picking up on the sounds around you and your your senses are sharper and like you just like you get out of city living and not that I live in a big city or you do or anything but you just get out of that normal life routine and that hustle and bustle and you just like you're almost connecting with the woods like it's where you're supposed to be you know and you you feel it and you just you you make better decisions that way you move through the woods quieter and more efficient and like you you you're just switched on and and tuned into the woods and it's so important but it it's so tough to describe but it does it takes a a day or two to get that to get in that rhythm with the with the mountains you know it seems like absolutely yep switched on 
switched on. Well, and then um, those stocks, like, uh, you know, through those eight years, you've learned some hard lessons, as I have. I think we all have to go through it, you know, when we're starting bow hunting. But uh, so much of being successful is being really good inside that red zone. It's like these small little movements inside, like there, there's these – these small little details in getting the shot on that animal and, and they just determine whether you get the shot or not and whether you make the shot or not and, and they're so there's such microscopic details that, that the common eye or even even a, a seasoned hunter might not even notice but just the way you bring up your bow slow the way you position your body for the shot and you kind of slouch on your knees and you make sure you got background behind you and when you draw back you know you don't bring your bow limb up high you kind of have your bow pointed at them and you kind of bend the limbs back as, as slowly as you can and like there's all these these microscopic details that go into getting that shot that make the difference between being su successful and not do you find that too Absolutely. It is the little things. And uh, a lot of those you don't really, you know, you have, you have instinct. I think everyone has a really strong instinct, you know, probably when it comes to hunting, most people never realize that or unlock it. But once you unlock that instinct and then, and then learn some of the more technical skills that you learn through trial and error, like you're saying, you know, drawing your bow slowly, you know, being dead quiet when you're in close, taking your time, really being methodical and keeping in mind all the ways you've failed in the past. I mean, it, it makes you uh, really deadly and, and it is all about the details. Just the little, little things can make all the difference in whether you're actually going to you know, make a great shot on an animal or if he's going to bound away and you're going to spend, you know, the next two days just trying to relocate him. And so it is absolutely the small things. Yep. And it, it becomes, you're right, it becomes your instincts and it becomes second nature where you don't even have to think about it. It isn't a decision. It's just how you move in the woods and how you stalk and how you do it. But yeah, those little details make such a difference that um, a big part of my game here recently was like working on that that range finder detail. That's such a big part is having the the good range on the animal that you're shooting. Because uh, if I have a good range, I know I can hit them. I've executed enough shots. But God, if you mess up in that little step getting a range, and it's so tough. Like it sounds like okay, you hit the hit them with the range finder, and you know. But you're always trying to hide behind grass and stuff, and so you're like your range finder's hitting the grass, and you got to bring up your head like silhouette over the skyline you know where this buck can see and pick you off moving and you've got to be able to get a range above the grass and have a good range but it's so difficult and it's such an underrated skill and under talked about but grabbing a good range on an animal um i mean for me that's a big part of being successful absolutely and that's something you know we're the benefactor of that technology um you know when you and i were first getting going we didn't have range finders and uh so it was it was much trickier, and you were guessing yardage and trying to get it right. But now that we have that, um, there's no reason not to get an accurate range on every animal you shoot at because it is going to increase your success rate significantly. And it is very very tricky. You know, you've got eyes on you, especially you know, like you're talking uh, your Montana hunt. You're you're you've got does looking at you too. You got bucks. You got big big groups of deer. Um, and you know they've all got they've all got senses that are uh, much better than yours, and you're trying to sneak up on them, and and you're trying to you know raise up your your rangefinder, your binoculars, and and get a good range inside that red zone. It's it's tricky, but it's key. And 
uh, a lot of times, you know, if you're just off two yards, three yards, it's going to be, uh, depending on your setup, it can be a game changer. I mean, you could either have a, a complete miss or you can make a less than adequate shot, and that's a big deal. And so you, I think it always behooves you to take your time and get a, a really solid range. And if you, if you don't, if you aren't confident in the range, I think, I think you're better off not taking the shot unless they're really, really close and you're, you know, you're, you're really, um, sure that you're going to be able to get a, a vital shot. But I think you're better off just waiting and being patient because so many times those animals will meander around or they may, may be aware of your presence, but not exactly sure of what you are, not sure that you're something to run away from. And so you, you may get a better opportunity to range them. And I think in the end, you're going to have a better outcome doing that. I think shot selection and range finding is, is absolutely critical. For me, too. Um, I don't do very good at guessing at the yardage. I never have. Like, as I think about it right now, like, I'm I'm sure there's an animal that I've that I've cowboyed that I didn't have a range on that things happen quick and like this is my chance for a shot or not or you know you kind of guesstimate the yardage he was at this and then he moved here and now I think he's that. Um, But I I mean, I can't think of an instance where that's worked out for me. I almost always airball it when I'm trying to guess at yardage. I I am horrible at judging yardage, but it's so difficult in the field and then when you don't practice it. So I'm with you. I need to get a range, and then I need to get a good range is the deal. Like it's so easy to get a bad range, and if they're bedded down, you're hitting the grass in front of them, and you're not sure. And you, like <laughs> I've had those deer yep. that all range find a hundred times trying to figure out what range they are, trying to hit them in the horns, the head, the the body, and then I'm getting the grass and I'm getting different ranges. So yeah, it's just difficult. But if you have a good range, then you can execute a good shot. And if you if you don't, I think you're right. Like you're 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 better to just wait and let the scenario present itself or let it unfold in front of you. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and if you don't get a good range, you will watch your arrow sail directly into whatever you ranged. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yep, definitely been there. I, I once had a nice nice uh, bedded. He was uh, a Colorado high country buck, and he had a couple extras, and this is the first year I ever hunted out of state, and man, I wanted that buck so bad. And I got a, I thought a perfect range on him. He was bedded down, had no idea I was there, and you know, had really took my time, you know, controlled my breathing, had what I felt like was perfect shot ex- execution, and you know, I released that arrow and I just watched, and it, the windage was perfect, and I was watching this arrow sail through the air, and then. <clears throat> And it just sticks directly into the tree behind him, right where I ranged. (laughs) (laughs) I I go over there and unscrew my arrow, and the broadhead's still there as a relic of my my lack of knowledge. But took my arrow, and that was it. I did the same thing, yeah. Range in a Nevada buck bedded, and I was trying to range his horns, and it actually ranged the tree behind him. And so when the buck stood up, yep, I nailed the tree behind him just like you. <laughs> yep, perfect shot. I <laughs> it was a perfect shot on that tree, <laughs> yep. That was a heck of a ponderosa you got there, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so true. Well, and um, – like along with those those range finding and those details inside the red zone, like a lot of it is just not moving, like knowing when not to move. Like you know, a lot of that stalking is knowing when to freeze and just stay still. Like you'll have 
deer and elk look at you, that doesn't always mean that they see you. You like if you can just stay frozen, a lot of times they'll go back to doing what they're doing and think, oh, it's nothing. Or, um, but but there's a lot of times during the stock where you just got to stay frozen. You know, out of out of a Say you got a 45-minute stock, there's probably 30 minutes of that stock that I'm absolutely frozen still because, you know, either they could see me if I do move or, you know, maybe I have a doe look in my direction or whatever the case. But those stocks have to be so slow and so precise, but knowing when to freeze inside bow range is a big one. Absolutely. And it can get really tricky because you're trying to, you know, cover distance and and there's always this sense of urgency Ooh, uh, yeah. that we have in the back of our of our head because you've, you know, spent all this time and energy and effort and then you finally see what you're after. And, you know, it's it's natural to think, man, I want to do this now. I want to get this now. I want to get this shot now. Uh, but you really have to slow down. And I think something that's really important in that movement and being still as much as moving like you're talking about is is looking up because guys will get really uh invested in you know how you're moving your feet or maybe you're crawling and you're you're so worried about your movement that it's that it's easy not to to scan your surroundings as much as you should so i think you know after every movement you should look up and make sure that there's not a deer looking at you because these animals i mean they blend in so well that they can be pinned they can have you pinned and maybe they're not exactly where you thought they were going to be and they can have you pinned and if you are just absolutely still and you look up and you you know assess your surroundings before you make another movement uh, a lot of times you can you can still have a chance at that animal. Whereas if you are, you know, maybe taking three steps at a time and, and the deer pins you and, uh, when you're halfway through your second stride, then they're going to see you take a step. That movement's going to key them off and they're going to be gone. Oh yeah. That's such a great point. Yeah. You, you do kind of get tunnel vision focusing on your stock and, um, yeah, you have to be aware of the game animal that you're stalking at all times. Like, keeping track of of his body movements and behavior and when his head is down and head is up and then like you say that's part of my game i'm working on too is is uh you know i'm pretty good at that part of it and and pretty good at taking a step looking taking a step and looking in that but well i do get tunnel vision on that animal that i'm trying to harvest and sometimes it's like a buck that you don't see or a doe that you don't see in your peripheral or you know that that buck that you were you 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 were stalking like he was in a certain spot and you're coming over the rise and you're expecting them to be right in that spot and he's off to your left 30 yards and you're just not you know you're not panning around every step like every direction and that's so important like those those little details make all the difference in the world so yeah you're spot on and there usually can be you know and maybe another animal or a few animals that you didn't even see from your initial you know spotting of of that buck or that bull or whatever because you know that that country has even even down here in the desert where it seems pretty open there's there's folds and there's bushes and and you know these animals blend in really well so you're there's a good chance you haven't seen everything that's in that exact vicinity and so um, knowing the approximate locations of those animals is really important. But uh, as you get in there and spend, you know, it may, it, you may see an animal from a long ways away and, and spend hours getting over to where they are and everything's changed. And so you, you have to be absolutely aware of your surroundings. And I've, I listened to a podcast you did that was really, really informative about um, doing that, looking to your left, looking to your right, you know, scanning, scanning the, 
the hillside as you crest over it and, you know, just being so aware of it because that's what it takes. And, uh, you know, you're, you really have the deck stacked against you. You're trying to sneak in on a group of animals that, you know, have great eyes, great ears. They can smell you, which is a sense that we basically is ineffectual for us. And, uh, you know, it's just it's tricky. And so you got to do everything right to even have a chance. Isn't that the truth? Um, yeah, uh, I had a bull this year. Maybe I already told the story on the podcast, but I had a bull this year. We spotted this really nice six point, and he was bedded in this basin. It was like early afternoon, and he was bedded in the perfect spot, good wind, and it was like, man, I think I can kill that bull. And so I panned around with my scope, panned all the way around him. I didn't see any other bulls. I thought it was just him. So I snuck in, and gosh, I just started getting into bow range, and I'm so hyper-focused at where that bull is at because I know he's bedded right in that draw, and all of a sudden I can see his horns, and I'm I'm hyper-focused on that animal as I'm taking steps and I'm starting to close the distance. And to my left, like about 90 degrees or you know uh, 120 degrees, is here's this other bull, and he is standing there in the wide open watching me stalk this bull. <laughs> it, it was a total mistake on my part, but it's just not being aware and painting for other animals, thinking, I had them all seen and it was pretty wide open country but there actually ended up being three bulls in there and and the one bull that saw me ended up blowing out and spooking the bull that I was talking that I would have killed if it was just oh, him man. but yeah just one of those uh, again those hard lessons that you just keep learning where you go oh man I gotta be better in that better in that spot right there but um, that's what bow hunting is is constantly trying to improve yeah and there's only so much you can do and then you know if that happens you dust yourself off and try again there you go. Persistence, uh, full circle. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> it is. It's um, yeah. You just got to keep trying and keep making your best plays. But yeah, that that being aware of those surroundings around you, and, and also making a a good game plan and really assessing the situation. Like not just seeing a a buck that you want to kill and racing over there. Like sometimes it's like sitting back and watching that buck and seeing what other bucks are around. You know, see a. Uh, being able to analyze the whole situation before you make your your educated stock that you're going to do or your your plan around them, you know, is just taking stock of everything that's there and and uh, the the entire situation. I think. Yep, and I think it it does require a little bit of luck. You know, things have to to work out in your favor. And so many people, you know, say have all these sayings about luck and how it's really just hard work and all this. But I think you do have to have a little bit of luck on your side. I I made um, a pretty <laughs> pretty intense stock this past January on a nice desert buck and uh, he was with seven does and it was it was this country that was pretty much like a moonscape there was there was essentially no vegetation so the stocking was really really tough and uh, glassed them up and they were 900 yards away and it was in the evening and didn't have a lot of time to get down there. And so just took off after it. And then it, it was one of those stocks that, you know, it was, it seemed like it was a little bit marginal from the get go, uh, based on my past experience, but it was, it was really going to be the only opportunity I had. So I just made a go for it. And, uh, <laughs> what I did was, you know, I was just kept an eye on every one of those deer and when they had their heads down feeding, I would move a little bit closer. And then when they looked up, I'd stop. And then I'd move in a little closer every time they're feeding. And I, uh, you know, I kind of surprised myself that it actually worked out, but I was able to get within 
55 yards of them and, and take that nice buck. And, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> I wish I would have had it on, on video because it was, it was pretty spectacular that it actually worked out. I'd say uh, just awareness of those animals, and your your best chance to kill those animals is when they don't know they're being hunted, and, and their guards kind of down like those deer that you saw. They were just focused on feeding, and yeah, they pick up their heads and they scan for danger. But but animals they they don't really see your camo pattern or what you're wearing. They see movement, the same thing as a human eye. Like if they catch movement, they see you, and now they're locked on to you, and now you don't have much of a chance. But but if like you did, like staying frozen every time they looked up and only stalking when their heads are down it, it's amazing like you you have a bit of the upper hand when they don't know that something's hunting them um so if you can keep that element of surprise uh you know the odds are definitely more in your favor absolutely absolutely yeah. yep well that, if, do you hunt that desert any different than you hunt uh other types of country like that that desert, um, do you use like a different set of optics or anything when you're hunting the desert down there, or do you just use like your standard um, binos and scope? Um, so I've I've kind of changed recently. About uh, I guess it was would have been three years ago. I saved up and bought myself some 15 by 56 Leicas, and so those are those are really sweet for the desert country i still like the 10 power binoculars for the high country um i know some guys carry 15s but i use you know 10 power optics i do a, a lot of a lot of searching and um you know when you when you see something go after it but i think in that in that desert country you can glass for for miles um pretty well with with some 15s and you know at least pick out animals and then, you know, get a, get a better look of, with, you know, the higher powered spotting scope if you think that they're, uh, worth taking a closer look at. But in the high country, I really, I really do prefer a lower magnification just because sometimes you'll be in tight country, you know, you might be in a basin and I think it's to your detriment to have that higher magnification. Although you do sometimes have <laughs> have situations where you wish you could look across, you know, three basins and see what was on a, a north slope, you know, a mile and a half away. But um, it, I, I prefer the, on average, I prefer the tin power. Yep. Um, yeah, those those fifteens Leicas have to be a sweet set of glass. Uh, yeah, those. I'm with you. So the ten power is like the the ultimate hunting bino, and there are situations and there's there is places where the where the fifteen power works better. But I like having ten like right on my chest, and and like you say, picking out those close animals and mule deer in that high country. It's amazing how well they can hide. You can have a deer feeding three hundred yards down below you and not pick it out. Like, you have to actually glass that with your binos, or if they're bedded somewhere there, like, you could just, um, you can't just get stuck glassing everything afar, and the, the 15s, you're zoomed in too tight, and so when you get in that close country, you can't pick it apart like you want to, and so, like, I think you end up missing deer and spooking more deer, but, um, I'm with you, that desert is, like, made for 15s, um, like, what I've thought about, too, is, like, carrying my 10s on my chest and then throwing the 15s in the pack and then tripod up the 15s to pan around. But, yeah, I got to get myself a set of 15s. I really want a set bad. Yeah, they're, they're for their intended use, they're really, really something else. Uh, it, it's It can make a big difference on these desert hunts. Yeah, my buddy uh, Miguel that's there in Arizona, 
Um, he's got a set of big eyes that he's made with a bracket that he's has custom built, and then he's got two Swarovski scopes within. I, th- oh, I think, man. Um, I think Probably he's the got, 65s or. Yeah, two 65 scopes that are mounted side by side, and then. Uh, he's had the fixed power like a uh, 30 on there before, and I think he has now like the adjustable on both the eyes. Um, but then he pans through that desert with that. But that's like almost all he uses besides his binos on his chest to close, glass the the close stuff. Um, but yeah, set of those big eyes, they're pretty impressive what you can see with them. Absolutely. I, as long as you have someone to carry them up the mountain for you. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm tough enough to pack those things either. Those are um, – what are the uh, other ones uh, that all the desert guys use? The docks? Is that is that them? Yeah, the doctor optics yep. and then the cowas as well. Oh, yeah, the cowas. Yep. Um, they're sweet, but yeah, I think like, um, even having a set of 15 seems about right for me. Like I, I like those 15s and then you can actually pack the things around. But yeah, I really want to get a set of those. Yeah, I don't think I've never. I mean, they're they're expensive. You know, glass that big with any quality is is really really expensive. But it's uh, it's hard at the time you have purchased. But I don't think you'll regret it afterwards. Yep, and I just can't go cheap on my glass. I guess I'm a glass snob. Like I I really like that high end glass. It's so fun to look through. But you know, I don't. I don't own a bunch of toys like I don't you know I don't have a bunch of four wheelers and and snowmobiles or nothing against anybody that does like I just I spend my money you spend your money on what's important to you and what's important to me is looking through fine glass like there's there's nothing more enjoyable for me than being in the mountain somewhere and having that high quality glass where you can just see that that sharpness and that color fidelity and and picking animals out and so for me um you know it sounds like you too like uh, buying those Leica 15s like I like getting the the best pair I can afford and so even though I really want a pair of 15s like I'm not going to buy a budget set that I'm not going to be happy with or that's going to strain my eyes too much so yeah I just got to save my pennies and get a good set of them absolutely and what you said about enjoyment of using them it really doesn't make a difference you know I never had good glass until pretty recently but wow what a difference it makes Uh, just from even a mid-level to a high-level binocular uh, it really it's a lot more fun to glass. You do it more often, therefore you're more successful at finding things through glassing, and it's it's really something if you haven't tried it. Yeah, when those those fifteens, like you say, like sometimes you're glassing with your tens, and you know with a good high quality pair of tens, you can pick about anything out. But there's just that that right distance that's a little bit too far for them, where you're just not quite seeing all the detail you need to be able to pick out deer that far away. And that's where those 15s would come in handy, where you could just dissect that landscape that's across from you. Like that desert country that you're talking about, I bet. I bet you're so you're glassing quite a ways then out on that desert, or you can be? Yes, you can. And it'll surprise you just how far – I mean, the high country is not really any different. But once you get in tune with, with what you're looking at, and it, you know, it takes a little time for your eyes to pick out the colors, and um, you know, <laughs> it's interesting because – over the years, I think as much time as you or I have spent glassing or a lot of these other guys, I mean, you get so in tune with searching for the shape of a deer, you know, that white rump, you know, the, the shape of antlers. Uh, you get really in tune to that. And you can see that from a long ways away. You you may not be able to pick out details, but you can say, wow, there's a deer and that's, you know, two and a half miles away. Uh, it, so it, it really, I think it comes with the territory, but you can you can definitely glass them from a long ways once you once you get used to what you're looking for. 
Yeah, you sure can. And that that's a huge part of being successful too. Like um, you know, everybody knows to glass and everybody knows that, you know, that you, you look through your binos and you try to pick out critters, but there's something about glassing skill too. Like the the more you do it and the more animals you pick out and the the more in tune with the species that you're hunting too. Like if you always hunt mule deer, well then you're keyed in on how to spot mule deer. If you you always hunt coos and you're you're keyed in on how to spot coos, but um, it's such an advantage as a, a big part of harvesting a quality animal is finding a quality animal and, uh, you know, being efficient behind that glass, you know, choosing the right vantage points, trying not to stare in the sun the whole time, always trying to have the sun at your back. Um, man. And then just, um, I, I don't know, just your pan around and I don't do a grid per se, but I make sure that I cover all the country, but I'm kind of drawn towards bucky spots but it's amazing when you're a good glasser like um you know you go with buddies you know and and uh it's amazing how many more animals that you'll pick out on the regular than your buddy just because of glassing skill and i've I've got some good buddies that are great glassers that'll beat me up on the mountain too some days you know we'll go we'll go back and forth but um it's amazing good glassing skill and and consistently you're gonna see more than the average guy and if you're gonna see more then it's just a matter of time before you spot that that ear flicker of that giant bedded buck down below you and you like all of a sudden you've just created this opportunity out of thin air Yep, that would have otherwise been missed, and you know they can be really well hidden. You might just see an antler tip, you know, move in in the oak brush or whatever the case may be, and and there you go. You you have instead of a, a day, you know, essentially wasted without a stock. Maybe you you pick that buck up midday because of your your skills glassing, and you can uh, make a play on him. So yeah, it makes a huge difference. Well, and also like um, as you're moving through country, like and that's part it goes back to um, being in tune with the woods. But um, you know, you you end up making so many mistakes, and there's nothing that frustrates you more than when you walk too far over a ridge that you didn't glass, and all of a sudden you spook a giant buck, and you don't even get a chance at him. You just spook him before you ever get a play, and so you start to learn to be in tune and not walk on the ridge lines, like walk just off the ridge line. And then as you're popping over the ridge line, like don't just walk like 20 yards over the ridge line to the spot that gives you the master vantage like stop and every little new piece of country that exposes itself glass and pan through it as you're standing there and then take a couple more steps glass and pan through it but these small steps like like as you're moving through country are are so huge in in creating opportunities and not spooking game be before you get a chance at them yeah, I don't think you're ever going to be disappointed that you or regret moving too slow. You can you can definitely move too fast. If you move too slow, uh, you're probably not going to miss out on opportunities. Yeah, well, and you get in such a hurry. Like I, I'll get to where this new spot where I can see these new drainages, and it's like, oh, I just got to get to that rock outcropping, and then I'll sit on my butt and I'll pick it apart. Well, then you make your way to that rock outcropping, but don't glass along the way of getting there, and all of a mm-hmm. sudden a buck bounds off, and you go, God dang it, I should have, I should have been glassing as I came through. So yeah, just that that glassing as you're kind of moving through country, any new country that's exposed to you, just throw your binos up on it. Like it's it's uh, it, it'll pay off. And and you're going to spook less game and get more opportunities. Right. Yep. And it's a trade-off, like you were saying. Uh, you know, I don't have a, a set glassing regimen. I know there's all kinds of techniques with, you know, three-phase glassing and all different kind of stuff. But, I mean, you just you get to where you, you know those spots that are likely to hold animals. You can look them over real quick, even if you're, if you're not picking it apart. Just looking at it for a few seconds with your binoculars is going to reveal a lot more than you would see, you know, 
looking with just your eyes. So it's definitely worth the time, and it can it can pan out for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, okay, so uh, to go back to like stalking your desert deer this year in um, New Mexico. Um, so you would you would move and stop when they okay that's not a good scenario. What I'm thinking of is like on the stock. Do you move? quick and then slow down like a lot of times when i'm stalking or i see a deer that i want to stalk or an elk that i want to stalk while i'm out of sight and i'm closing distance it seems like i really push my pace like i'm i'm trying to get there because i don't want that animal to move off and i'm trying to get above them and and then like i start to slow down like as the stalk progresses as i now that i'm exposing myself in 200 yards i really slow down now at 100 yards i'm at a snail's place but getting into that if i've got a mile to cover in a cool or something like half the time i'm jogging to try to get to them do you do you handle it the same way or is it all slow and methodical for you uh no so it, it, there is definitely a time to hurry and a time to to be slow most of what i've been talking about is is kind of like once you're once you're inside the red zone this is all assuming that you you know have located a buck sometimes you'll you'll happen upon a deer as you're you know moving to a location or something that's kind of a different animal but um if you have spotted something and maybe put them to bed or or know their general location and you're trying to get in on them um Oftentimes, like you're saying, I will, as long as I've, I've got a decent wind and I know I, I pick my approach path so that I'll stay out of sight. And a lot of times there's some prizes, uh, you know, in the country as you're moving across it. Maybe it's a specific drainage you haven't been up or uh, so it, it may not play out exactly like you thought it would in your head. Uh, but as long as I have a pathway where I'm out of sight, uh a lot of times I will really book it. I mean, there've been occasions where I, you know, literally running, um, to try and get into that red zone and then, you know, take my time and a lot, depending on what the animals are doing, you know, if they're up and feeding and making a little bit of noise, you know, you adjust accordingly, you might move a little bit faster. Uh, but yeah, sometimes you just have to close the country, especially, you know, evening, you might, you might see an animal that's a long ways away, like I did uh, telling you about my January hunt, and you got to close the distance real fast, and then, and then really take your time at the, you know, the last, last bit, and kind of the rule of thumb that I use is, I think if I'm within 300 yards, and it depends a lot on the topography, but if I'm within 300 yards, um, then I try to be, you know, quiet and i try to move slowly uh you know of course if you have something that's just on the other side of a ridge or you know you have a strong wind you know that that's that can change and you can you can get in closer before you have to be really really um aware of your your scent and and your noise but uh in general i say if you're if you're within 300 yards then you got to be really careful yeah um that's funny. You kind of handle it the same way I do. In every circumstance and in every different topography and habitat is different of how you move on something. But you just get to learn what you can get away with and what you can't. And you're never stalking recklessly. You're never trying to force the issue. But, yeah, if I've got a buck feeding in there in that basin, like I, w- I want to get to him as quick as I can. Now, you have to know when to slow down. And this can bite you, too, as you're trying to move quick up this wash and then all of a sudden you kick out a deer and he spooks the other the other, other deer. You know, that's going to happen. But for the yeah. most part, like if, if I see that opportunity, you know, a lot of times I'm trying to close the distance. Like I, I had a buck in Wyoming – 
it's been a handful of years now. We called him the Marathon Buck, and we were getting down there to like our last couple days. And um, we spotted him. We actually watched this buck shed his velvet, and now he's just this gorgeous hardhorned buck. I actually wow. underjudged him because uh, his ear spread ended up being 26 inches, and he had this huge wow. donkey head on him. And so I thought he was about a 175-inch buck, and I think he ended up going 192. But wow. uh, anyways, he was feeding in this slide, and it was the evening, like you're saying, and I had to go all the way around him, but I knew I could make it, but I jogged absolutely the whole way until I got to the backside of that ridge and then slow my pace, then got over the ridge as you're just panning at every little exposed country, caught the buck, able to make a play down, and then put a good shot through his lungs, but yeah, it's... It's knowing when to slow down on those stocks, but a lot of times, yeah, you're trying to cover country and get there, you know, so you can create an opportunity. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I heard I heard Randy Ulmer say that he won't make a stock unless uh, unless he thinks there's a 90% probability that it's going to work out. And I, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think of it in, in percentage terms, but um, you know, when it's time to go, when they're in a, a good situation, and you know, that might be the only <laughs> you you may be out there for a week and you know maybe not finding deer you find find the deer and he's not in a good spot you you may only get one chance that that entire hunt and so uh you definitely want to make it count and uh so you got to know when to go and know when to wait and try and find a better opportunity and i think that just comes with experience and like you're saying on that wyoming buck that's that's great you knew what you needed to do you moved in there and you got it done yeah, um, you're right. Like trying to look at it, uh, at high percentage plays, and and you're right. There's no mathematical equation that you can do on a piece of paper that's going to tell you whether you're going to get that buck or not. But you just kind of see how things are developing and go, okay, the wind looks good. All right, you know, he's just over that ridge. All I got to do is make it to that spot. There's no bucks above him. Like that's high percentage. I think I can kill that thing. I'm I'm going all in. I'm going for it. Or, you know, the 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 other side of it is like catching that buck and he's he's just on the edge of the timber and by the time you make a play around he's going to disappear in the timber and be bedded down you know that's low percentage you know the only thing you're going to do is spook that buck so yeah being able to recognize that and i i think like you said it's just experience and time in the mountains but it, it's also just paying attention uh and, and being decisive when you think you have a good opportunity you go in and it's not always going to work out and so you just try to learn from it but uh when it does work out or you do get it right you know you you also learn from that and store that and go gosh that's really high percentage if i can know exactly where that buck beds and stock him in his bed like he isn't going to move he's in that bed or you know he can always get up and feed away but knowing his exact position and he's not moving then i can be as slow as i want coming around him and, and i know he's still going to be there so you know i don't got to worry about uh him seeing me or hearing me or or smelling me you know i've got all those things right and that's when i when i go all in and creep in so you start to learn those circumstances that that are high percentage for you Mm -hmm. And if you make good decisions, I think you you know you will surprise yourself with with success. I think so much of the learning process is just making marginal decisions that you don't know are marginal at the time. They seem like great ideas, but as you as you learn more about the animal you're pursuing and and how to actually successfully get an arrow in them, I mean you you realize huh, a lot of those things I did were probably not the greatest ideas, right? Um, and, well, you learn quick, like not to take any shortcuts. 
Because if you take a shortcut in, in early in your hunting career, or even as you progress, like the quicker you can learn that, the better off you are. Like it hardly ever works to hustle. Like sometimes you can cut things off if you got a ridgeline to, to hide behind or whatever, but it, it very rarely works out to like try to rush your stock. And, and I'm talking in the last 200 yards. I know we just got done talking about running for mule deer, but in that last 200 yards, trying to rush that and trying to force that, it, it never really pans out, it seems like. And, and so you got to learn that lesson quick. The quicker you can learn to not force things, like if you're down below that deer, you don't walk through an open meadow. Even if you're trying to cut distance, you go all the way around the long way of the timber because you just can't take that shortcut. That buck will pick you off and that stock will be over with. Like you learn what you can get away with and what you can't. And once you learn what you can't get away with, you don't push that ever. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And, and the same thing with, with the, uh, the actual shot itself. I think, you know, any advice to new bow hunters would be above all else, do not force your shot because, uh, you know, worst case scenario, you injure an animal, you know, it's the last thing any bow hunter wants to do. We love these animals. We respect them, you know, it's very significantly. Uh, but if you do injure an animal, uh, that's the worst feeling you could have. And so don't force your shot if it's, you know, if it's further than you think you should be shooting or if it's marginal, if you have, you know, brush coverage, whatever the case may be, then don't force it. You're going to have a better chance of getting that buck and harvesting and having, you know, the memories to go along with that if you don't force it and, and actually take no shot uh, and come back another day and try and make a stock on that buck. I think there's a real tendency to want to, you know, just loose an arrow and, and think it's all going to work out. But uh, oftentimes that's not the case. You you should really select your shots. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, I'm not guilty of that, especially when I first started hunting. Uh, but uh, once you, the sooner you learn that lesson, the more success you're going to have. And, you know, it's, it's the ethical choice to make and it's the right thing to do. And it's going to help you actually get that deer on the ground versus never seeing them again. Oh, that's so true, Kai. Um, yeah, not trying to force that shot and then, and, um, Man, oh man, like you, you touched on so many good points there, but yeah, that, uh, when, you know, and I think we all have to go through that, but yeah, if you don't hit an animal right or you wound an animal, like it takes you to your lowest low, like it, it can ruin your whole season. So, you know, and it, you may, it, and go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you, there's a very good chance you will never see that animal again. If you make a marginal shot, especially in a lot of this big high country that you and I are hunting. Uh, that deer could easily go to a place that you physically cannot go because it's too rough or down some, some canyon there where you have no visibility, you know, unless you're standing right where he happened to go. And so if you want to be successful on that animal, you have to make a good shot. Yeah, and you're just better off, like you say, not to take the shot and keep hunting with a healthy mind, like not being drained of that, oh, I, I missed that, or even worse yet, I wounded that, like – you're gonna you're gonna hunt unaffectively for the next few days because you're so worried about that deer. If not, you don't pack up and go to the truck altogether because it does take you to your lowest low. Or maybe you know sometimes you even notch your tag because you know it was a lethal shot and you didn't find that deer. But um, yeah, not not forcing that shot. And I've gotten 
extreme amount of confidence when I'm in the woods. And, and sometimes I've had too much where like that animal's bedded or I've just got a small window in between the trees and I, I try to force that arrow in there and it's almost like too tight of a window to try to force. And, and then I screw up the shot. And if I just would have been patient and let that deer walk out, I would have killed him. And also waiting for your shot angle to present itself. Like, um, don't try to force it like at a bad angle or try to like it's to to shoot something in the front okay they die if you hit them in the front in the chest and you bury that arrow but it's such a small spot that you have to hit there that that's not the target you want to be shooting at yeah if he's standing at 20 yards i can probably thread one in there and he's not going to make it too far but if he's standing at 40 like a a little breath of wind that moves my arrow three inches all of a sudden it's not not an an ethical clean kill or it's not a a good shot so it's such a small spot to hit that really wait to get that that good broadside shot or that quartering away shot and and also bedded don't try to force it into them in their bed like a lot of times they'll lay with their spine forcing you uh, facing you and if you hit that spine there's no guarantee that it's going to drop that deer like it may just stop your arrow and that buck takes off never to be seen again and and so don't try to force it in between that spine and get that angle right like your best target is that broadside or that quartering away animal and and really wait for that shot and the more patient you can be in that situation like you just you learn your lessons right because you make mistakes and you didn't get that deer and it's like man if i would have just waited and then and then taken a really good angle on them then it's a dead deer so i i mean i'm with you man you just don't try to force those things absolutely and that frontal shot can be a great shot but i would advise anyone to only take it at extreme close range because it is a very small a very small window and i mean it, it's everyone's different confidence levels ability shooting but it's a different ball game when you're shooting on a live animal you're you're you know standing on a scree slope that's 30 degrees you know you're uh, you've got wind you're wearing a bunch of clothes because it's cold you know there's there's so many things going on uh that i think there's a lot of overconfidence that develops you know shooting uh shooting blocks in the backyard versus you know what actually happens on the mountain so you're always better to err on the side of caution and you've spent all this time supposedly you know patterning these bucks and figuring out what they're doing locating them and you know especially early in the season like a lot of the high country stuff that you and i do uh those those bucks are in a pattern and they're in a in a space because they like it and there's food and there's there's cover and there's water and there's everything they need in that area so you're a lot of times better to just back out you can you can definitely back out with being without being noticed if you do it correctly and just come back the next morning and there's a pretty good chance that you know maybe that animal will be right where you left him there's definitely a better chance of doing that and having success than taking a marginal shot and you know blowing the buck out or wounding him or something like that so it's it definitely is a is an important thing for for people to think about before they make that decision to let that arrow go well, and the longer you play the game, the better your odds of harvesting that buck. Like the longer the longer you have eyes on that buck and you're making plays at him and he's unspooked, just the better your chances of killing him. And you also made a good point about range. Like um, it's not the same as shooting in flip-flops in the backyard. You're, you're <laughs> uneven slopes, like you said, 30-degree uh, scree slopes. Your heart's beating out of your chest. You know, you're high elevation. You're probably just working really hard. Like you're in the fog of adrenaline. Like you're not as effective as shooting at a target in the backyard. And, and you can try to – like in your practice – um, you, you know, to 
to give yourself perspective, like uh, uh, run back and sprint back from your target and then stand on one leg and put your other foot on your on your one foot and then try to execute that shot and see how effective you are. But that's like that's how it's going to be when you're shooting at an animal. And so I think we all have to learn our own lessons. But, you know, you, you get almost too much confidence. And, yeah, you can hit that block in the backyard and you're hitting it every time, 70, 80 yards. But out in the field it's a different beast and you're better to to get closer and know you can make that clean kill on that animal than than trying to wing one at those longer distances and, and messing up the scenario spooking the animal um or, or possibly wounding it and ruining your whole hunt so yeah you're just you're better off like whatever your effective range is in your backyard take 20 yards off that in the field and say okay so you know i've got to get inside 60 yards or i've got to get inside 50 yards and i know i can make that per- that shot 100% of the time cuz that pin just doesn't aim the same on an animal that thing waves around and and that's another thing when you're executing your shot don't just find the body and 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 make that shot go like really make sure that you just take those extra couple 2 3 seconds and sometimes it takes 5 seconds for my pin to stop wandering around so much and kind to start to to find that middle but you know you heard that that old saying pick a hair which is like pick a spot on that animal and you really have to do that with your pin like it can't be wandering all over the body and just trying to hit them there like it's got to be in the spot when your shot breaks and so um really take your time when you when you're executing that shot and also with those long range like just get a little bit closer like really inside your effective range where you're 100 percent positive you know you can make that kill yeah, it sounds so simple, but what you're saying is great advice. You know, pick the the actual spot, and if it, just that exercise of looking at the animal's body and picking the you know patch of hair, the color variation, or you know where you can see the ripple of the shoulder, whatever the case may be, just the exercise of actually doing that. Um, brings your focus to a smaller area, you're going to get a better shot off and it's going to play out in your favor in the long run. And so also sneaking in close, man, that's more fun. I'd rather do that anyway. You know, you get right on top of them and and then you're going to have a a better shot percentage and a better story. (laughs) Absolutely. Do you ever uh, practice drawing on animals as you're hunting? Like a like a say a doe or a small buck or whatever. Like I I don't set my pin so I'm not gonna kill the thing or what. And I never put my thumb on the trigger or anything. But a lot of times like you know I'll get inside 60 yards. And it's like oh, I want to see what that sight window looks like. So I'll just draw back and kind of just try to hold my pin in the middle of the body and just kind of practice that and then let down. You know of course being careful that I'm never gonna lose an arrow. But um I like to practice drawing on animals and aiming because it's kind of you're you're in that uneven terrain and that is a real animal and you know you get to see like how your pin's gonna hold on them and you go okay yeah that would be a dead deer you know and then i let down do you do that honestly i haven't but that's a that would be a great exercise and a good thought for sure yeah yeah it's just something that i that i do every once in a while when i'm hunting or i'm i'm that close to a deer it's like i'll just draw back and just see what my pin looks like on it you know definitely Um, a little practice but uh yeah, and then practicing real-time scenarios, too. Like, a lot of times you're shooting off your knees, should be practicing off your knees. 
Um, you know, like I like to do some sprints back to the, to the target and shoot with that elevated heart rate or even, um, pushups are real good cause they kind of get your arms tired. So you don't aim as good, but, but it kind of simulates what it's going to be like when you're shooting at a deer and nothing can be the exact simulation of, of, of what it's like, but at least that gets you a little bit closer to what it feels like when your pin will not stay still and you got to wait and be patient and then the aiming kind of settles down and then you're able to break that shot. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I try to I try to replicate that in my in my uh, in my shooting practice. Do you? Uh, yes, I do. I think you know even something as simple as just jogging back. You know, you go pull your arrows out of the target, you jog back to where whatever yardage you're shooting. Um, you know, just getting your heart rate up a little. It's better than nothing. Uh, you know, there's, there's, like we already said, there's so many X factors when you're on the mountain though. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're usually just exhausted and sleep deprived and your body's about to give out. And that's, um, <laughs> you know, it's hard to replicate it, but every little bit helps for sure. Yep. Um, well, it's no easy feat, uh, but hunting success doesn't come easy, but that's why it's so fun. It's so challenging to get all those things right. And it's like, uh, I think that's what I love about it so much is that you never stop improving. You never stop learning. Like you're never just, um, at least for me, I'm never like, like the ultimate, like I can't get any better. Like I'm, I'm always learning in the mountains and I think that's what's so fun about it. Oh yeah. It's the bow hunting is the hardest thing I've ever done. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. And I love it. I mean, it is, there, there's so many things in our lives that you have some control over, uh, <laughs> bow hunting, you know, you're, you, the animal is completely beyond your control and, you know, you do your best, you, uh, you make your best effort and you learn and you, you get, you know, I, I would say you can reach a level of proficiency, but you will, you will never master it, and so that's what keeps me coming back for more. Isn't that the truth? Um, well, you got your name in the hat for some good draws this year? Uh, I've been scheming and trying to figure out a plan. I I typically just try and get whatever tags I can get because I want to spend time out in the field and have a bow in my hand and be seeing some new country. Um, so I, I typically am not one to accumulate bonus points and preference points and all that you know if i can if i can get a tag i try and get it uh so a lot of more opportunity type hunts and you know then just hard work and trying to find a mature animal um so that's kind of what i'm thinking i'll do this year um we'll see i i hope i hope i get the draw gods on my side because I, it sure is disappointing we don't have a tag in your pocket Oh, that's the worst. But yeah, and then coming up with a backup plan too. You know, there are some over-the-counter hunts, and so yeah, um, it it takes a a good game plan to make sure that you got tags every season and that you're hunting somewhere every season. Um, where did those uh, three bucks come from last year that you killed? Let's see. So last year I killed uh, that first one was a Arizona over-the-counter tag. Um, and then the second buck I killed was a Nevada buck in velvet. And then that was the, that, the, the velvet one with like the stickers and a really nice four point. Is that the one? Yeah. He, yeah. He's a nice buck. Good mass, a little bit narrow, but just tall and, and just a really mature, nice buck. So I was really happy with him. And then I, uh, headed up to Colorado and 
uh, that was my hunt for that Nevada buck went a lot longer than I was expecting it to. So I really didn't have much time in Colorado. And it was one of those things that just, you know, every once in a while you get lucky, but I had never been in that unit before and I had three days to hunt. And so I drove up uh, to Colorado and packed in at night like I usually do just because I'm um, trying to maximize my time and so I packed in and got back there about six hours and you know you, you can only do so much you know scouting and and forecasting and prognosticating uh, and you know I so I thought I was probably going to be in an okay spot and sun came up and I looked all around and didn't see a single deer and uh, so I was I was pretty down at that point, and I you know I was I was too far to move anywhere else. But I climbed up a anywhere you know any significant move, uh, climbed up another ridge, and just basically glassed most of the day. And right about midday, I saw I saw a group of a couple of really nice bucks, and there was there was a really nice velvet buck, four point deep forks, just a beautiful specimen. Um, and then I saw this buck that I ended up harvesting, which was you know bigger than that buck he was he was he was already out of velvet um he he was just a really mature buck he had kind of a a weak fork on his um back passenger side and um that was interesting his g2 was it was really thick and it had a sticker coming off the side it was it was just you know twice as thick as it normally would have been so he just had a lot of character and i saw this guy um and his and his friend out there uh feeding in the willows and you know, I made a play on him, didn't work out. Um, and so here I am the next day, which is the last day I have to hunt and located him again. And he was by himself this time and he was kind of on the tip of a ridge. And I just, like we were talking about hurrying up, you know, I just basically sprinted to get within 300 yards of him as he was feeding around right at first light. And, uh, he was in a little draw on the side of this face and this is, this is all real high elevation stuff up at 12,000 feet. So there's a little, little ravine or drainage on the side of this hill. And I came up on the edge of that ravine and I knew I couldn't see him on the far side and the ravine was about 60 yards across. So I knew he was probably still in the bottom. And so I got, got ready and sure enough, you know, he popped up on the other side and was able to make it happen. And so I'm still counting my blessings on that hunt. I mean, I'm, I was just amazed that I <laughs> that I was able to get it done in that short time span and uh, on such a great buck. So, um, hiked him out and back to work on Monday. So it worked out really well. Man, that's amazing. Like uh, sometimes it's just meant to be, or it just comes together, doesn't it? And it's all about putting forth the effort, even having limited time. It's just putting forth the effort. You're six hours in the dark and then not seeing a deer and climbing up on the high ridge and continuing to glass throughout the day, turn up the bu the buck, make a stock, doesn't work out, but then keeping after it up in there and then catching that buck by himself, you know, and, and on that ridge and then, um, you know, making that play at him and covering that distance quick and, um, Man, there's there's just a there's a lot of effort there that you put in, and it just came together. So good for you. Yeah, uh, both of those were just gorgeous bucks, or all three of them. But uh, yeah, that velvet Nevada that was a really nice heavy one, and then like you say, that Colorado buck that was a big mature hardhorn buck. It was a great looking deer. So yeah, uh, congratulations, man. That's a super season. 
Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I mean, it was, it was great. Uh, that that Colorado buck just had a really nice frame on him, and it was just uh, so so fortunate that it worked out. Yeah, and at twelve thousand feet up there in the high country of Colorado, it, uh, and to kill a mature buck like that, um, man, it just doesn't get much better than that. Definitely, that's uh, that's the <laughs> one of the biggest reasons you keep coming back is just that that feeling. I don't know, I don't know of a better feeling to go out there and to earn it on your own and just be, you know, you're just so so blessed you feel so blessed and you you feel so rewarded that it actually worked out i mean it's a great experience even if you don't get an animal um just being up in that country in itself is is worth it but man it's just there's there's not a better feeling no well it's so challenging and so difficult and you put so much into it like all the miles and all the training and uh you know it's not fun all the time you know you're grinding at it you know and so when it all comes together and you achieve your goal you set out for yourself and you take a mature buck and you got meat to get you through the winter um yeah there's no better feeling on on planet earth and you're so proud of that buck you know i I can't wait to, you know, uh, my buddies that are happy for me, you know, like send them a message. You go, man, I got it done, you know, and it, it's just amazing. And they know what it takes to be successful so they can appreciate it where they're just like, man, that is so awesome. Congratulations. And and same thing with me. You know, I want to see their pictures when they're successful. And then and then also social media, you know, the uh, all the social media guys that I've met and know are also supportive and positive and and then to be able to share it with them. But, yeah, you're just so proud and uh, it just seems surreal when it actually comes together. It is so difficult. Sometimes it feels like it's impossible or that it's never going to come together. And, and then you just keep pushing forward and you keep grinding. And all of a sudden it works out like it's meant to be and you end up arrowing a great buck. And, and like you said, there's just no better feeling on planet Earth to me. Absolutely. Yep. Right there with you. You got to make that that shot under such an intense amount of pressure and and uh, fog of adrenaline, like we were saying. But um, to to be able to conquer that and and make that shot, like I haven't found an an adrenaline dump anywhere close to that of being in range of a mule deer. That that adrenaline you get when you're close and you've worked so hard for it. Um, and, and I think you know the the harder you work for something, the the more it means to you. And that's part of the reason why you know a good muley buck means so much to us. But yeah, that that feeling of a it's just a no better feeling and i i don't think i ever need to jump out of a plane or bungee jump like i, yeah, I, was, I found gonna, i was gonna ask you if you'd ever done that <laughs> <laughs> no i haven't but uh no i i found my where i like to get my adrenaline you know it's um it's definitely with that bow hunting that close range there's just nothing like it yep it is it is a rush to be you know 30 yards from from something that's you've worked so hard for and and then to have it come together just to even if even if you don't get the shot just to be in their bedroom i mean it's uh it's a rush absolutely well um man thanks a bunch for being on i've really enjoyed our conversation this is like a next level bow hunting or um just the the details advanced bow hunting this is just a, a great podcast i really enjoyed it like you'll have to come back on this year after your hunting season we'll see how you did and and uh, do another one but i enjoyed it kai thank you i did as well i appreciate you having me on so much great information you touched on. So, um, yeah, it's a super podcast. I know our audience will really like it. So, yeah, thanks again. Good luck in the draws, and let's keep in touch. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Bye. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Um, another episode of Eastman's Elevated. Uh, yeah, really fun talking to Kai. Uh, I really like that guy. And uh, just that that uh, average blue-collar, public land, self-guided 
um, and, and then extremely successful, and he does it all with his bow and arrow. And so I've got a lot of respect for what he does and, and uh, really enjoyed sharing notes with him. Um, again, the sponsor for today's show is Sitka. Um, Sitka is just doing so much great stuff, so many great things with their products. Uh, they just they keep evolving the brand, evolving their fit and uh, their their fabrics and, and materials that they use. And um, gosh, I'm just using it from head to toe, like I say, for everything. Um, fishing, you know, I was just steelhead on the Olympic Peninsula. I use Sitka gear there. Um, yeah, using it for all my hunts. Uh, they now have some new workwear, um, so I got a new jacket that I've been using for trail running that's been working really good, and then I use their their heavyweight hoodie, and I, and I just use a layering system um, for everything that I'm doing, and I, I do so much in the outdoors, you know, with the, the fishing, running, hiking, hunting. Um, but, but I also, I work outside as well for the construction company and, um, it's not always the nicest on my clothing. <laughs> like, uh, what did I get on me yesterday? Uh, oh, I was wearing a pair of pants and, oh, I dropped clear coat all over me, just stained the front of my pants. I can't have anything nice, but there too, like I've got to be working in, in all different temperatures throughout all different seasons. And so I want to be comfortable when you're working eight hours a day outside in the cold and the wind. And uh, so the only way I know how to be comfortable is to wear my quality gear. So if you see a little uh, clear coat stain or maybe some subfloor adhesive on my jackets, that's why, because I'm wearing it all the time. But uh, I love Sitka. I I love their company and I just can't say enough good things about them. And I I just I really appreciate them um, standing behind and supporting the podcast Uh, just means the world to me. So thanks to those guys. Let's show them our support. Um. And again, over there at Eastman's, man, it's just crazy busy um, just with construction and trying to finish up all these wintertime projects and get to my springtime projects and just managing that and and managing the podcast and then family and um, my girls' sports. And uh, it's just been crazy busy here. But um, it's a good thing uh, managing through it and uh, be busy while I'm young um, and, and just going for it. I have been fitting in all my workouts I've uh, been really disciplined there, making sure I'm getting my runs in, getting some longer runs, you know, just doing doing what I said I was going to do. And I'm, I'm going to come into this season in the best shape I've been in and shooting the best I've ever shot. And uh, I'm going to be ready for the challenge. And and uh, I'm not going to accept anything but uh, but a successful hunt. I mean, not, you know, I can I can go and be unsuccessful and have a good hunt, but I am going to give it my absolute all when I get on any of these tags. Um, yeah, I'm just going to cover country like a madman and try to just create those opportunities, have a lot of confidence in my skills, try to get stocks on the on the quality animals that are my goal animals. And um, man, I just can't wait for the test. And, and the first backcountry test comes up here in bear season. So uh, I also got to sit down and record a bear podcast here for you guys, um, kind of help you out coming into the spring season. So I'll get that done as well. I'm going to do a solo one and release it, I believe, on um, Sunday. So um, sit down in the next few days and, and record one of those. I was thinking um, mental toughness. I've just been thinking about and working on just my mental game so much and just like, um, boy, it... It, it all hinges on on your mental game and um, so anyway I just been thinking and breaking that down a lot I had to watch a couple documentaries and I've been finding motivation too in other places but uh, I, I just I want to have the strongest will out there and um, 
uh, be able to use my mind for the for the tool it is to be successful. But okay, I'm starting to ramble on. Uh, let's end this thing. Uh, thanks as always for all the support, guys, and uh, check in with you next week or check in with you Sunday actually. So um, we'll see you soon.